Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast talking about potentially the most exciting stage, GC stage of the tour I've seen in quite a while. Andrew, do you just want to say a quick word about the Choose the Hard Way podcast before we get into it? Yeah, for sure. So Choose the Hard Way, my guests come on and they share stories about how hard things make stronger, more resilient people. And sometimes in life, the hard way chooses you. Sometimes you choose the hard way, but you can be a stronger, more resilient person on the other side of that. So that's what the pod is all about. And I have guests from business, tech, the arts, the military, and a lot of other disciplines. So come on over and check us out. We're on all platforms, or you can go to choosethehardway.com. And there'll be a link in the show notes. And I was a guest on the podcast. Actually, a few people listened to that one, reached out. It's it's fun to hear your feedback on that. So please do it if you're interested in Andrew and I. So we just watched stage 11 of the tour, two HC climbs, oddly not the hardest stage they're going to face this week. Um, I thought it was very, very exciting. We saw Yumbo being really aggressive from really far out. I saw them get a lot of crap on Twitter during the stage because they essentially exhausted their team by the base of the final climb. I agree with the tactic, but Andrew, I'm curious, what were your thoughts coming away from the stage? Wow. Talk about the hard way. <laughs> Definitely. Yumbo chose the hard way here. Yeah. Yumbo chose the hard way. I don't, I can't recall having seen the action heat up like that among GC contenders that far out in a stage in the tour ever in my history of watching the tour over 30 years of watching the tour and it, in the moment it seemed like a questionable tactic at the end they seem vindicated and you know i think it remains to be seen why was that actually successful will it stick and you know taking a look at the loyal lieutenant uh garrett thomas they're just plugging along like a diesel engine you have to wonder what does he have up his sleeve behind those Oakleys. <laughs> I don't. I texted this during the stage. I don't know if he was ever that loyal. I think convenient lieutenant. While it happened, now he's just basking in this amazing third, fourth iteration of his career. Now, Garen Thomas was really impressive today. Really, we saw the the favorites duking it out. I mean, the stage was essentially there was two climbs: the Telegraph and the Galibier, two famous climbs. They were kind of jammed together into one super climb halfway through, like a 35-kilometer ascent. And then it finished on the Col de Gourmand, which has only been used once before. Um, I think it's the hardest climb in this tour. It was brutal, like sustained 10% for 11 kilometers. What was so bizarre is Yumbo had two riders in the break in Laporte and Van Art. Van Art was driving the break hard, um, like on the flats, which you would expect, and then up the Galibier. He was dropping career climbers as like a 6'3", 180-pound man, essentially. I've never seen anything quite like that. But the idea was to get Wout over the Galibier, and then you can use him in between the Galibier and the Grimond. And you could tell Yumbo's whole goal was they don't care. They just get Jonas to the bottom of the final climb. Teammates will not matter after they cross the threshold of that climb because it's so hard. It's It's a man-on-man battle. The thing that was crazy is they, they kind of go over the telegraph, a little descent into the Galibier. There's a little bit of a flat area. And Yumbo had two riders. They attacked over the, the telegraph on the descent with Roglic. And they were like one-twoing Pogacar, just like attacking Pogacar would pull it back. Attack, the next guy would go. With like, what was that, like 60K to go? I couldn't believe what I was watching. A 60K to go and two HC climbs. You know, I think 
they got a lot of heat for this because then Pogacar takes control, sets pace up the Glebier. He gets some teammates to come back to him on the descent. And it's like, oh, wow, look, Yumbo's depleted. Vindegaard's now isolated. Pogacar has a teammate in Micah. But they, they, the damage had been done because it was so hard for Pogacar. You know, if you're ever in that position where you have to close down two teammates attacking you, it's really difficult, really drains you. And I think maybe a misreading we all had was that Roglic, I, it seems like he knew it. It seems like the team knew it. I don't think he was ever in the correct fitness to win this race overall. And they were using him. He was essentially a decoy today. I mean, he was really active on the telegraph before the Glebier. And looking back, that was all a mistake. Bogacar should not have responded to any of that because Roglic never had the condition to make it up the Grimond with the lead group. I mean, is that how you read that, Andrew? Maybe, maybe not. And that was, it was the prisoner's dilemma for Pagachar today when he was in that situation because he was getting punched over and over and over by Primos and by Jonas. And yeah, in the moment, it was really hard to read. Was this John Nash or was this Papa Roach? Was this a beautiful mind or was this a last resort <laughs> effort? Right. And we've seen this like, not work. Going? I mean, like a lot like this. It reeked of Movistar for a minute. I mean, if you look through it, if you squinted, you might have thought this was Movistar about to blow up their own race. Yeah, it, it was like a real berserker style move, just throwing everything at Tade to see if he could take it. And I was trying to think about, you know, I because I texted you during the race. I was like, is Tade potentially going to actually break away from them at this point and drop them? But then he would he had the full climb in front of him. He had the valley. Wout could have dropped back and paced uh, Primos and Jonas back up to him. Potentially, it, uh, it was just a lot happening at one time. It was really tactically complex. And just to, yeah, just to point out, it's great thing you just said. So that's the benefit of having Wout up the road, and that's. Punish, you know, it's like punishment for UAE for not having someone up the road because Pagachar, let's say he feels good enough, could have just been like, screw these guys. Like, see you later. I'm attacking. I'm going to meet my teammate at the top. He's going to ride me to the base of the final climb. I'm going to win the stage. Pagachar probably didn't have the fitness to do that. But, you know, on Pagachar on a good day would. And then also Yumbo is protected against that from happening, even if UAE has a rider up there because Wout can always, that's like Wout's their insurance policy. He can always drop back and pace them if Pogacar goes. We saw a little bit. So they did catch Wout. Roglic was in a group with, I believe, with Micah and like 55 UAP or FDJ riders. FDJ was like secretly the best team today. And paced them back on before the final climb. Once they all connected, Wout put two minutes into Bargill, who was leading the race before the base of the climb, which was super impressive. I saw some criticism there of like, well, he just paced Pogacar's teammate back on. Why would he do that? I have my own theory why that worked for them. I'm a, I'm a little like shocked at how like bold it is. Um, in retrospect, they, they maybe knew Jonas is just, as the Belgians say, has diamonds in his legs and was going to crush any, anyone, everyone anyway on the final climb. I mean, how did you read that in the moment, Andrew? Diamonds in his legs. I haven't heard that one before. That's that's quite a turn of phrase. Yeah, it uh, you know, everything seems crazy until it's genius. That was how I read it. And I think we should just like cut to the chase here because I think the thing that's on everybody's mind, I saw Vodders uh tweeted about this, and I thought you're probably the right guy to ask. What are the odds 
that uh, Pogacar has COVID and he's going to pop positive tomorrow. Let's get deep platform. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I was just about to say, <laughs> we're, we're diagnosing, we're now Andrew and Spencer MD, diagnosing COVID 3,000 miles away. Um, just using like our powers of deduction, Pogacar looked bad. I mean, he was the first guy to open his jersey. It's always possible that he just didn't have it, you know? It happens sometimes in cycling. But if we just, you know, collect information from around, let, let's just run through what happened, the timeline. I think it was, what, stage eight, they have a rider leave the race with COVID. Allegedly, I heard that that rider had had COVID for days before, and they kept him in the team and kept that secret, um, just so maybe he gets better. I don't know. I don't understand the logic. He leaves. What, four days later? George Bennett, COVID, has to leave the race. Rafa Micah, COVID, stays in the race. So now there's three riders that Tade Pogacar has had contact with that we know have had COVID in the last week. He's riding next to Micah. He's in the team bus with him. They know he's positive. To me, that's a crazy decision to make. Actually, every decision they've made is crazy to me. It wouldn't be, it does not seem impossible that he has COVID. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. And also, if you look at the the performances of the last 10 days, and he is a champion, he is hungry, he wanted to go for every last morsel of victory that he could lap up. And, you know, him going for stage wins at moments when it just didn't seem like that really favored his uh, his overall chances from an energy conservation point of view. Even yesterday... When we saw him <laughs> sprinting for uh, 20th place. Yeah, sprinting for 20th place. He just has been going all out at really odd times. It looked like a huge waste of energy. And I just wonder if they were trying to absolutely maximize, hey, we know that something's going down in the team and there's all this public evidence that you shared and there was were potentially some other things going on. They knew that at some point the plug was going to get pulled. He would be out of the race. And they just wanted to maximize their sporting chance to get as many victories as possible from a stage win point of view. And they never needed to conserve energy for later in the race because they knew that things were likely to implode. I know that we're like, again, we're like deep in deep platform COVID conspiracy theories here, but I don't think it's actually that far fetched. And, you know, we'll find out here in the coming days and weeks what actually happened. But couldn't they have solved all of that by just, if you have COVID, you can't be at the race. Like, it seemed like they brought a lot of this on themselves. Like, the Micah decision is insane. I mean, I, I saw a picture of his COVID test. It was, like, the reddest second line I've ever seen. And, like, I guess they deduced that he wasn't contagious. I don't know. If I was a team manager, I'd say, if, if you have a, a freaking cold, like, you're not getting in the team bus. You're not getting anywhere around my leader if you have a sniffle. And they were letting riders they know to have COVID be around Tade. To me, it seems, like, very self-inflicted. and. The first rider to get COVID, I mean, you could see he wasn't well for days before he dropped out. Mark Hershey, who knows what's going on with Mark Hershey? He hasn't looked right all race. It just seems like they're, it's like they're very antagonistic about this, but it's like, this is, you guys are in a battle with yourselves. Like we don't, I don't care if you have riders with COVID on your team. I just don't want, I want to see a good race and I don't want Tade Pogacar to get COVID. And it seemed like they were trying to like trick us like, Ooh, we have COVID in the team and we're not going to tell you. It's like, well, I don't matter. 
Tadic Pogacar matters. Protect him. The the whole thing. I mean, being so aggressive, who knows? If he doesn't have COVID, it was a mistake. You know, he was racing like Roglic was in 2020. And we all know what happened to Roglic in 2020. It's just not a sustainable way to race a Grand Tour. Yeah. And this, again, highlights the lack of a union for the riders, the lack of any kind of collective bargaining, and then bigger things tied into TV rights sponsor exposure writers needs as it relates to future contracts. And I saw a quote from Garrett Thomas. I think this was in a cycling news piece and he was talking about the stage yesterday and Micah. And he said, we sat behind Rafa and then swung out because we didn't want to get behind him. And then Yumbo did the same thing. Everyone was laughing about that. I'm okay with him here. It's not a big viral load, like you say, and we've all had it and we've all had jabs. I mean, you know, I think that that says a lot about what's going on inside of the race. And Tade wasn't riding behind him either. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, the whole thing is absurd. I mean, how is he so important to your team that he's worth getting your infecting your leader with COVID? It, It. yeah, and we're seeing different attitudes in different teams. This was in a Vela News piece about COVID. DSM told Vela News they would remove any rider on the squad who returned a positive COVID-19 result. So there's no uniformity of application here. And if you have riders and and team directors just having to make these calls on their own versus there being a really clear, more binary protocol, which there isn't, it, it sounds like there's a negotiation between the team and the doctors in the race, more or less. That's kind of how I'm reading this to determine what's the severity of the viral load. What are the symptoms? Is the rider able to continue or not? But it it is really mysterious. I don't know what the benefit of having a really ill rider who can't provide any benefit for your team other than being on TV, I guess. Yeah. And DSM's a polarizing team. Like everyone wants to not be on that team. People can't wait to leave it, but those guys are really smart. The people who run the team are objectively smart people. Like that's a smart policy. That's probably the policy I would have if I was running a team. If you have COVID, you can't be here. I, I, I'm a lack for words of what's going on at UAE. I, I don't understand what their aim is and again it seems it's like antagonistic like they're trying to like prove us wrong that covid's good i i don't know i mean they're really only hurting themselves though that's where it gets weird like i don't there could be a race rule and they could try to evade it but it's not like doping it's not like you're trying to get around a test that proves you're cheating you're trying to get around a test that is helping you. I, I mean, I, we could have a conversation all day about what the heck happened on the rest day with those tests. How did every rider return a negative test? And then now we see that there's clearly COVID in the race. Yeah, it's a miracle. And just the COVID protocols generally, we know within the teams, the teams are saying like, yeah, we have really tight bubbles equally. We know all the riders and three staffers from each team were stuck on those planes going back to the transfer out of Denmark. So we know that there was potential exposure there. We have massive crowds, which that's part of what's cool about the sport of cycling at the professional level is that you have fans who are part of the field of play. And as we saw today uh, on the climb, not always in a way that the writers are grateful for. Jonas had to like wave off someone who had a flag that looked like it might go into his oh, wheels. I'm all for it. I want to see writers get 
just tackle him. Do you remember this Giuseppe Guarini in 1999? A man tackled him on Alpe d'Huez. Just straight up ran on in the just, road and took him out. He's winning the race. And he just got tackled. As I said, it's just a just a hug. The tour is stupid. It's just a don't hug. ever don't ever get be fooled into thinking this is not the dumbest sporting event on the planet. Well, that's you know we're trying to have a rational conversation about COVID within the race here, and I think that you're right. Like if you watch the triplets of Belleville, it's not all that different today. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, realistically, what's to be done? Like the the fans are the riders really getting COVID from the fans? I can't imagine that that's happening. If it is, there's nothing to be done. We're not going to do fanless tours for the next ten years. I I'm of the belief that it should just be it should be treated like a regular illness. Like the teams should just be able to say, "You have COVID, you can stay, you can leave." And because you would think it's in their interest to not get the rest of the team sick. Like it should be aligned incentives there. We're seeing with UAE that it's not always working that way, though. Let's talk about something slight, just moderately less controversial gonna, just for a minute. I'll say the GC really quick, just so people know. Jonas okay. Vindegaard, after the All stage, right. is two minutes, 16 seconds ahead of Roman Bardet. Tade Pogacar is two minutes and 22 seconds behind them. Garrett Thomas, two minutes and 26 seconds behind, not behind them. This is not F1, behind the leader. Naira Quintana, two minutes, 37 seconds down. So you basically have Vinegard, two minutes of head ahead of like a chunk of riders, a little peloton of riders. And then Adam Yates is in sixth at three minutes back. So that's where we stand. A pretty big lead from Jonas to the rest. Oh, and then were you, were you going to say something, Andrew, before I, I read the GC? Yeah, well, before we, yeah, it's okay. Before we move on, do you think we'll see a Bardet victory? No, I don't because... He's racing for the GC. Barde overall victory or Barde stage victory? Overall. Oh, no way. Absolutely not. He's going to lose five minutes in that time trial. He's the worst time trialist. No. Miguel Angel Lopez is the worst time trialist in the peloton. Roman Barde is probably a close second. Do you remember he finished second at the tour, but he was like six minutes behind Chris Froome because he was so bad at time trialing. So now he won't win. And we have a 40-kilometer time trial left. I just wanted to throw you in alley-oop so that you could dunk. All right, <laughs> I, so I like Roman Partey, by the way. He's one of my favorite writers. Okay. Something I noticed, I'm wondering if this jumped out at you. Wout was riding on the Cervelo aero bike today. He was not on the climbing bike like the rest of his teammates. And if you noticed, Warren Barguil was on the aero bike, who was in the breakaway with him, who literally couldn't pedal on the final climb. I mean, they must have just thought, I mean, if you look at the profile, it was somewhat flat for the first 70K. They both knew they were going for the breakaway. I'd assume, I mean, it's still unclear to me how much an aero road bike really helps you. People think they're faster. Of course, a wind tunnel, the frame is going to be faster than a non-aero frame. But once you get a person on there, does it, does it actually matter? Like, what's the difference? But clearly, they, they had ideas that they were going to drive the brake, both him and Barguil on the flats yeah definitely that was, was kind of my read on it and i think that wout knew that at some point he was going to be he was going to be dropping back and potentially didn't know when that was going to happen right so it uh he knew that he was going to be doing some pulling today yeah i mean at 77 kilos there's there was no gap that he could achieve that would have let him stay away on that final climb to win so he definitely knew yeah. that his race was essentially from the first like kilometer zero to the intermediate sprint. And then 
I mean, it's not like he was going easy. He was driving the breakaway. So that was important. But then essentially he was like put in on kryptonite until no on uh, what's the stuff that Han Solo was in? Carbonite. Carbonite. Until they caught him on the descent of the Glibier. And then he went back to, they're just like, hey, I've, I've actually never quite seen anything quite like this. The guy was driving the breakaway, like a really hard breakaway, gets caught. And they're like, so Primo's is back there. He's like a minute back. Do you want to go get him? And he just went and like pulled him back like it was no problem. And then they catch and it's like, so Bargiel, we need the stage victory because we want time bonuses. Can you get Bargiel for us? And he put two minutes into Bargiel and like, it was like something like six kilometers. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that. Yeah, and again, we were texting about this, but one of the factoids shared on the broadcast today was that in an earlier stage, wow, it averaged, averaged, I don't think this was normalized power. This was his average power was 378 watts for four and a half hours, which is freaking freaking bananas. It's bananas, and it's why we're not Wout Van Art. It's why we're not off the front of the tour every other day. I've seen a lot of these tweets going around where like a trainer was posting the, it was like anonymous numbers from a, or numbers from an anonymous tour rider. I suspect it to be Vlasov. And it's just like, you know, they do their zone three is 390 and they do that for four hours. And it seems crazy, but that's like us doing 200 Watts, you know, like the FTP of Wout, like, Ghana does 580 watts for 20-minute efforts, which means his FTP is probably around, what, you knock 20% of that off. So his FTP is above 500 watts. I would say Wout's not too far below that. Let's just say 490, 500 for an hour. So for him doing 380 watts is like not that difficult, like relative to how difficult it seems for us. Fair enough. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's the professional athletes, right? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and not just like professional athletes, but like un- like it, it's almost hard to put into words how how much better they are than like the average professional. Yeah. That's what's crazy. Yeah, generational talents for sure. So let's talk about your boy Garrett Thomas for a minute, okay. just as a as a frame of okay. reference. Obviously, Jonas Vindegaard, amazing, strongest climber in this race. Chris Horner um, was like went on a tirade about how they should have brought Yoan Dennis, Rowan Dennis. They're going to lose this race because Wout Van Aert is selfish. I think today hopefully proved that wrong, but how it was like Wout's fault that Primo's crashed on the cobbled stage. But is his like, he had a little nugget in there that I thought was interesting that Jonas is the strongest climber in this race. No, at no point in this race has Jonas been dropped by Primo or by Pogacar on a climb. If in fact Jonas dropped Pogacar on that climb back on stage four. I think that that data is a little noisy. I don't know if that totally added up to me, but clearly Jonas is the strongest rider here. Strongest climber for sure. Behind him, as I said, it's like a bit of a peloton of riders just stuck together. Doesn't seem like anyone's that much better than the other. Garrett Thomas finishes fourth on the stage behind Bardet and Quintana. What's crazy about Garant is he's faster than he was when he was when he won the tour in 2018, which shows us how much the level has risen since then. Risen since then, like if he was riding this strong in 2019, he would have won the race overall. Like it just, it's almost mind-boggling. Or I would love to see Nairo's numbers on that final climb today compared to like the best he's ever been. I, I would say it's just as good as if not better than when he was matching Chris Froome and even dropping Chris Froome. And he's getting dropped by Jonas Vinegar. Yeah, that it's just like astounding how fast these guys. That was a hell of a ride from Quintana today. 
It was amazing from Quintana. I love to see it. I, as I said, we've been hurt. We're all, we're all, we don't trust Quintana anymore. We have trust issues. He's been just, he's been looking fantastic and then throwing up stinkers left and right. We can't tell what's coming the last few years. So I think tomorrow is going to be a really important day for him. Tomorrow's harder than today. If he can get through tomorrow looking as good as he was today, maybe a podium's in place for him. The thing, it's the same problem with Bardet, though. I mean, these guys just never, never really got the time trialing down. I don't know if it's like, obviously just natural ability isn't there, but it felt like the sport kind of blew by Bardet and Quintana because as we see, they, they're world-class when it comes to these summit finishes and they just are so bad at time trialing that even David Goodu could could overcome quite a bit of time on them. I mean, in Garrett Thomas, it's going to be like shooting fish in a barrel for him if they're anywhere close to him in the GC. Still a fan favorite. <laughs> in Andrew's house, fan favorite. What, what draws you to Garrett so much? He was amazing today. I mean, there was a point where when all those attacks were going down and it was, you know, it'd be like, it was like a Forrest Gump moment where it's like all these history defining moments kicking off. And then it's like forest in the corner. You know? And it's just like, look at these attacks. And then it's like corner of the frame, Garrett just sitting on the wheels. He played it perfectly. Um, I think he was probably on the limit thinking, what, what, what am I doing here? Why am I not retired? Why are these guys so fast? Where is Chris Froome? Where's Alberto Contador? I could beat those guys. This is crazy. And then, yeah, he was really, he was in a rough spot. He got dropped a couple times and just kind of rode his pace finished fourth on the stage is in contention for a podium a really impressive ride from him i love the wiggins on the moto commentary during the race and one of the things that he said today when it looked like thomas was getting totally smoked and then he kept coming back like the little engine that could and wiggins said hey i just want everybody to know it might look like Garen is in trouble right now, but he's not. This is like the tactic that we use on Team Sky. He's riding within himself. He's just below his threshold right now. He's going to hold a steady pace while they're slugging out in front of him. And, you know, it, it kind of worked, right? Like he kept coming back over and over. He, of course, was not able to go with Jonas, but no one was. Uh, so not that surprising. But I, I think what I like about the Thomas story a bit of a prickly veteran. He's had a lot of contact with the ground. I, I I do like the sense of humor he's had about the vest incident, and we didn't get to talk about it on the last episode, but he he really has gone all in on the vest and uh, has been sending it out in the field, so he's having fans take photos with it. The vest is kind of touring around France. He's now doing a fundraising initiative with it. So... I just appreciate that he's able to have a laugh at himself and shake it off after having a really absurd start to the tour with a mistake that I'm sure didn't seem very comical at the time. And he's coming back. Like he's writing, as you noted, he's writing stronger than ever. And I'm a bit surprised. And I like that he's in some regards proving us wrong. It's almost as if Froome came back from his and you know, it's not quite at that level obviously from had a really catastrophic injury but yeah somebody just like clawing their way back after crashing over and over having a lot of problems with form and now looking really really strong at a pretty advanced age relative to this new breed of of young 
generational talents that he's going up against. So I think just the experience he brings to the race and his ability to kind of ride out, as we saw today, moments that seem like they could be uh, race ending from a podium point of view. And he just kind of hung in there. So that's I think that's what I liked about Thomas. I did want to ask you a question, Spencer. Um, one of the things that you had in the Beyond the Peloton newsletter regarding Thomas. So he did have the change of glasses yesterday. I think we should talk about it a bit. So, Oh yeah, right? this is good. But just uh, on, on Thomas yeah. for a second, I think I dislike him for the same reason you like yeah. him. Like, I always feel like he's too good at the media game. Like we're all, he's just, pl- he just plays it. Like it's like his little fiddle and they'll lap it up, lap it up. He's got jokes for days. You know, it's just like, he's too good. Just, I, I don't trust him. He's, he could be a politician. Um, but he was, we should remember, he was amazing in 2018 when he won that tour. He was amazing. Like, I think he would have beaten Froome at his peak. He won two consecutive mountain stages. He was a little out of shape. He, he partied a little too hard that offseason. Was out of shape in 2019. Was absolute dog poo-poo in 2020, 2021. So, yeah, it is surprising on one hand that he's in this position. But, you know, he's older, which is never great for an athlete. But if you remember back to 2018, he was incredible. And so on one hand, I'm surprised. On the other hand, I'm just happy to see him not crashing because that, that's actually been his problem except for the two past years when he was just not fit, that he would be in, I think he could have beaten Froome a couple of those times and he just crashed at the wrong time. Yeah, just seeing the products of the Sky Death Star and uh, at advanced age and seeing can this rider actually transform and ride within the context of this new approach to the Tour de France. I mean, I kept I keep seeing tweets, Spencer, that say, today is the day that the real Tour de France starts. And I just think, hmm... Is that so? Stage seven. This is the yeah, day. This is, yeah. this is the day it started. <laughs> yeah, you're right. it, it's been the tour did. I love it's always the tour is the tour. It's like, well, what does that statement mean? It doesn't mean anything. Or the tour is one in the third week. It's like, well, no, the tour is one equally over every day because the second you gain on stage four doesn't equal some division of a second you gain on stage 17. The tour is won every day through cumulative over time and they add up the time and that's how the tour is won. So a lot of these platitudes that she don't make any sense. But, you know, if Yumbo, Yumbo had a plan today and they went for it, Ineos had a plan yesterday that I thought was really interesting. As you say, he's worn the same sunglasses for every race for maybe the last decade, maybe longer. They had him switch him out yesterday to just the team issued. Everyone wore the same sunglasses. I thought it was a really interesting strategy. Yesterday was a faster day, easier day, better for Ineos because as we saw, Adam Yates just just not have it. You know, he had symptomatic COVID two and a half weeks ago. He's not going to be able to compete with the best of the best. Tom Pickock lost 10 minutes today. Our sweet boy, Tom. I had so I had high hopes for him, but I think this is good for him in the long run. Um, but so Pickock was never going to be, they, they probably knew he could never compete on a day like today. So they had this plan yesterday where we're, we're just going to like, so chaos, you know, it was, it, race started so fast. It was so hard for the break away, way to get away. And they were slipping GC riders up into the break with Philippe Ogana, who in theory could drive them away from UAE, who would 
I mean, who was really struggling. They were all at the back. They could not have responded had if Garrett and I, I the plan as I read it was with Garrett wearing the same glasses as everyone. They wanted to slip him up there. UAE wouldn't know that he was there until it was too late. And then Ghana would be on the, you know, on the throttle and they could steal a few minutes from the rest of the GC group. In practice, would that have worked? I mean, Yumba would have chased. They really needed it. They they would have needed like Roglic to be up there for Yumbo not to chase and to really put UAE under pressure. But I thought it was an interesting strategy. Um, and you know, you could say today, like, oh, they they all lost a lot of time except for Thomas. That was a failure. But, you know, as you say, Thomas is right there. If Jonas has a problem, he could win this race. I, I liked it. What did you think about it? Now, this is a compliment. The theory that you had about the Thomas glass switch being something to confuse his opponents so that they couldn't visually identify him or he wasn't as readily visually identifiable in uh, in the, the TV feed uh, to the directors back in the car. I thought this was a really interesting idea. It has a bit of like a Scooby-Doo subplot quality about it, but... When I read it, I thought, you know, actually, this makes a ton of sense because it is much harder to identify the writers when they don't have some, as we've talked about, like, in general, it's really homogeneous. When you look at the bunch, the Red Bull helmet of WoW jumps out immediately when you see a wide shot of the group or of a breakaway. Same thing with Thomas's glasses because they stopped making them, I think, over a decade ago and they're white. He's the only person in the Peloton who's wearing those glasses. So... I thought that that was a really interesting insight. I hadn't thought about it. And Oakley has a partnership with the Tour de France, and they released a limited edition series of glasses that have Tour de France branding on them. So ostensibly, that's why the Ineos team were wearing these glasses yesterday. And I'm, you know, we also talked in an earlier episode about how Continental has a partnership with the Tour and a Continental tire with the Tour logo on it. So it could have been that they were, you know, and Aos was just trying to do something for an equipment sponsor. I mean, this is another thing I'd like to dig into because historically, Sky just bought all of their own equipment. Riders, of course, might have individual contracts for certain pieces of kit, uh, like glasses, potentially shoes. I don't know if they went that far. But in the past, they would just go by the very best and fastest gear, like whether it was wheels, uh, same thing with their drivetrains. A lot of teams have sponsorships or relationships with SRAM or Shimano, and they're getting all of their drivetrain components as part of that sponsorship. Or as we've read, they're potentially getting uh, components from 2019 or 2020 as part of their sponsorship today. But yeah, I just I just thought that was a really interesting take, Spencer. And if anybody who's if you've done any bike racing, like if someone has, for example, a neon yellow helmet and everyone else is wearing black or white helmets and you're looking around, it just catches your eye immediately, right? It jumps out. You know who they are. Yeah. And I guess it's more, you know, when you're in the Peloton, you know, Garen, Garen Thomas is a distinctive looking man, but it's for the directors in the car. Yep. Like when you see the front on, you know, you can like immediately tell when Garen Thomas is there because of the glasses. I actually like the idea that they had to fulfill some sponsorship obligation. So it's like, you know, they could have picked any day. They pick that day and it like gives them a little smoke screen. And so it's not like, well, why are they all wearing the same glasses? That's weird. Where it's like, you know, we got to do this for the sponsor. So I would bet it was a little bit of both. Like they could have just worn those glasses today instead of yesterday. 
I'm trying to, I'm looking at their budget. I know they used to buy their own stuff. They did have a change in ownership. I wonder if, if Mr. Radcliffe wants them to belt tighten a little bit and that they are actually taking sponsored gear as opposed to just buying everything. Just as a, for example, I noticed in the time trial, and I think on regular stages, they're riding Princeton Carbon Works wheels, the, the wheels that Cameron Wirth infamously uh, lended out to Matthew Vanderpool. And, you know, that's not, that's common. So a team might have a deal with a smaller equipment sponsor like Princeton Carbon Works. I don't know if they, um, have, if they, what they ride generally. I feel like I've seen Shimano Durace yeah, wheels. Yeah, Shimano wheels normally. Yeah. And yeah, there's no way Princeton is, if the most they would be providing is, is free wheels, there's no way they're giving them cash because you know, like, uh, usually the bike sponsor is paying, you know, three or 4 million euros a year just for you to ride the bikes plus the free bikes. And I'm trying to think, uh, usually that's also tied in with the wheel sponsorship. Um, and if it's not wheel, it's usually equipment where, you know, like specialized probably has real specialized teams have revolve wheels. Perhaps they do actually should pay closer attention. Yeah, generally. Yeah. So that's yeah. just a specialized wheel. It's not clear to me, you know, if you're, if you're on, I don't understand the people on Campy. I mean, I know there's Campy heads out there. I love what like Campy stands for. Shimano's the best equipment. Like if perhaps Ineos is just buying that. And I, I mean, you sent me a piece yesterday where like a lot of the Shimano sponsored teams can't even get the stuff because they're, they're just not the supply chain there to support giving teams free stuff anymore. So perhaps Ineos's advantage now is like they can just buy Shimano stuff as they, you know, as they want it and they're prioritized over someone who's just getting free gear. Yeah. On that point about drivetrains, I think the wildest thing that I saw in coverage, and I think this was from a, I think it was from a bike radar tech piece actually that I shared with you, Spencer, but the lotto team is riding, they're sponsored by Shimano and on their time trial bikes, they're riding campy, which, which is, that's wild, right? Because it's they don't have enough Shimano group sets to build up their time trial bikes. Campy was their previous drivetrain sponsor, and they just don't have enough stuff to build up those TT bikes. It's it is it kind of boggles the mind. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you can't if you can't get stuff to your top dealers, you're going to have to make a cut somewhere. And if a team like that doesn't have a winning time trialist, perhaps no one's even going to notice anyway with their riding. So it's like an easy place to make a cut for Shimano. Just guys, that's going to show you that it's not as streamlined as you might think. I even, someone texted me during the stage, like, oh, I'd love to have the, the EF team bikes. And it's like, I actually would like, if I was doing like the ride, the climbs today, just like as an enthusiast, I'd almost rather have my bike because I bet it's quite a bit lighter than the bikes that almost all of these riders are riding, which is like, it'd be like if F1 cars were slower than my RAV4 or something, you know, it's a really weird situation we found ourselves in. Yeah. Same thing with the paper numbers. I mean, it seems like a small detail, but ASO, it was ASO, correct? Not the UCI that mandated the use of, it was yeah. ASO. So ASO mandated the use of paper numbers for riders in the race. And I have to say on TV, they don't look too good. They don't look good. I mean, while it was definitely getting slowed down by his on stage four, like he was catching a lot of wind on those numbers. 
unclear to me why ASO thought this was an issue they needed to crack down on. I don't understand it. Um, do you want to talk about the G? So like we have a really hard stage tomorrow, like harder than today. We have three HC climbs. That's the hardest category of climb you can have. I mean, some of these are insane. We do the, the Galubier again, probably from the other side, 23 Ks. The Col de la Coiffeur, it's 30 kilometers. And then we get to the hard part. We finish on Alpe d'Huez, famous climb, 14K long, 8% steepness. It's on Bastille Day. This is going to be a banana stage. All the French teams, if you win on Bastille Day on Alpe d'Huez, you never have to buy another meal in your life again in France. If you're French, they want to be in this break. This is going to be crazy from the gun. Like, and then considering in from like the picture, the perspective of the GC, like, A, do you think Jonas has this? Like, is this already under wraps? Is he the strongest rider here? And is there someone you like from that little peloton behind who could take time back tomorrow? Yeah, Jonas is the strongest GC rider. COVID is the wild card. And... I think that what we're going to see tomorrow is we're going to see, I don't know what we're going to see tomorrow, honestly. I, I think that we're going to see Jonas try to take more time. And I think it's just a question of, is Pogacar going to be in the race tomorrow? And or is there going to be a protest tomorrow? Will we see a climate protest? I think that there are actually a lot of wild cards here that could actually heavily influence the outcome of the race and the action on the road. But I think the only thing that we can count on is is chaos uh and people trying to animate the race in an unexpected way i don't think that there's much that's highly predictable about what's going to happen in the rest of this race what do you think spencer i can tell you yumbo is going to suddenly become very concerned about the heat wave we shouldn't even be racing this is i heard it's gonna be 93 degrees at the summit on alpha west yesterday that's incredibly hot for it's i'm just looking it's 1800 meters so that's what that's almost 6000 feet or maybe about 6000 feet that means in the valley it's going to be at least 100 so there's going to be a lot of talk about like oh should we even race these stages and yumbo is probably going to say it's it's very unhealthy we can't we can't even be racing let's just let's just end the race right now um Jonas is incredible obviously could get covid his team seems to be a little bit more cautious than UAE is. And and I don't know. We could be early on Pogacar. You know, we don't know what the heck we're talking about. Maybe he doesn't have COVID. Maybe he just has been sprinting for every stage win for nine days and doing an unnecessary amount of work. And yesterday he was at the front, like, take ticket taking by himself, which I've never seen a GC leader do before. Like, that should be your your right-hand man should be up there doing that. That's all very hard. That adds up. He was responding to a lot of texts today. He could not have COVID. He could just have had a bad day. If that's the case, tomorrow is going to be very exciting. He's going to have to try to come out swinging. The thing that gets hard for him is his team is not strong. I would argue they were not strong from the beginning. They they would argue differently, but it's undisputable that now they're very weak. You know, they only have six riders. Amongst those six riders are are two or three capable of doing serious work so how does he you know it's going to be hard for him to to come back you need a team to wind it up like we saw with yumbo today like a team to really make it hard on the leader from a long ways from the finish and to do that without a team is going to be very 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 difficult it actually reminds me of like late stage contador who who raided cadell evans on 
a stage not unlike this on Alptuez. This is 165K. I think that stage was 100K. That was back in 2011 or 2012. Um, he's going to have to start racing like that Contador if he wants to win this race. We're going to see Pino in the break take that to the bank that Thibaut Pino was just like resting up today in anticipation of this stage. With the climbs as long as they are, and Yumbo as strong as they are, and they're going to just be setting tempo on the front, I'd have a hard time believing a break stays, though. I think this is going to be another GC finish. I mean, your guy Garrett is someone to watch for. Naira Quintana, someone to watch for. And then, you know, Jonas. I mean, Jonas is good. Like, potentially one of the best climbers we've seen in a long time. Does he ever... Are you ever super confident when you look at him? He looks like he looks so pale and like so frail at the end of the stage today. I'm like, is this guy going to make it to Paris? Like, I never have a ton of confidence in how robust he is. I'll meet your question with another question. Do you think that Quintana has a shot at winning the stage tomorrow? Quintana has a very good shot at winning the stage tomorrow. How that happens is a little, gets a little difficult. It would be, you know, it would be, have to be exactly like today, where he comes to the base with the GC group and attacks. Um, today, it didn't work so well for him. He got blown by by Vinegard. The thing that for tomorrow is Jonas might not attack. You know, today was very hard for him. He has a nice lead in the GC. He might just sit. And also, Aptuez is a very different climb. It has those flat hairpins because it's, it's like a major roadway up to Aptuez, the town. So to get trucks up there, they flatten the the uh hairpins so you can you can get some distance on a chasing group we saw it with uh carlos sastra against the uh against his own teammates the schleck brothers and cadell evans back in 2000 what was that 2008 so yeah we could see a quintana a la sastra victory on Alptuez tomorrow i wouldn't rule it out to jump back to yesterday the disruption from the climate protest in the midst of that level of heat, just the, the riders having to stop and start again. I mean, we've seen this so many times in the tour before. We've seen um, a number of different protests. There is a climate emergency. It's great that attention is being drawn to what's happening with global warming right now. Um, but Yeah, but they're like, instead of doing anything that penalizes anyone that's any type of decision maker it's like let's just get in front of these cyclists who are having a hard enough time as it is like i'm not a fan of these and they were sitting on the track at the british grand prix thankfully there was like a massive crash right before they got to them but they just would have ridden right over these protesters and it probably would have killed a few drivers i mean those f1 cars can't just like hit humans uh, without bad things happening to the drivers so I'm not a fan of these climate protesters. It's just like, let's, let's protest something that's like actual decision makers. Like, is Alberto Bediol going to be like, oh, wow, I have to stop polluting the planet because I run ExxonMobil? Well, it's providing some continuity from a narrative point of view to the cycling season. I don't know if you recall earlier in the year, it, pretty much every classic, a guy would run onto the finish sometimes in front of sprint finishes and i think his shirt said yeah. climate action now i was doing some research to see i was just trying to see are these the same groups and it looks like there are at least four distinct highly active groups uh in france that are doing these direct action protests often at sporting events 
the one yesterday I couldn't tie back to the the gentleman earlier in the year who kept jumping into the race. That guy had he had panache. He did. I mean, yeah, chapeau to him. Maximizing the ROI on that, he would he would be in every like every uh, finish photo. He's just in it. Yeah. I mean, I do feel a little bad for like imagine you win Tour Flanders and then like your photo of you winning has a freaking climate protester in it. <laughs> it's just like I, to me, it's a little disrespectful of the like the effort the riders are making. I don't know. I don't really care for these protests. Were they glued? Do we know if they were, do we know if they were glued to the road yesterday? I haven't been able to get more details. No, they did have like big chains though, like big chains around their necks onto the other person's necks. Okay. That seemed to be their strategy. Here's another kind of insider question for you, Spencer. I don't know if you got any details on this, but Wiggins, there's a quote from Wiggins regarding the protests and I'm trying to find it, but he said, I think the words that he used were, okay, here we go. It, it really was going off. It was quite crazy. A lot of people getting quite angry. Some of the director sportifs got out of the cars, stuck a boot in. So it sounds like we had some DSs who were involved in direct action of their own. Do you, this, this dapperly dressed gentleman who looked to be a director of a team was yeah out there physically dragging the protesters off the road. So the only thing is like, yeah, it was a little harm. Like, didn't really like that stage. It was like fine. That was like the whatever. Doesn't matter. That outcome was going to happen anyway. The peloton was never going to peg them back. Didn't really affect the race. It doesn't make you a little nervous. Like, what if the guy running on to the finish isn't a climate protester, but like someone with a bomb around their chest? Like, it just seems like there's no. And we saw today the guy with the the post who almost kind of it seemed like he was going to impale Jonas Vindegaard. Like there's almost no way there's there's like no authority on these races. It made me a little nervous thinking like what if instead of climate protesters these were I don't know if you remember like the Weather Underground group in the US back in the 60s and 70s but they would just like they were like very radical protesters who would like blow things up and and kill people to get their point across. Like I don't know, it makes me a little nervous if if they wanted to take it to the next level, they certainly could and it doesn't seem like there's any way to stop them. Yeah, this goes back to the idea that the Tour de France pro cycling is the only sport in the world where fans can become part of the field of play and it's actively encouraged. And yeah, I think it's incredibly dangerous. The Tour de France is a soft target for sure. You, do, I mean, you have a pretty limited rolling enclosure. People have access to the world's best athletes. And if someone were a bad actor who wanted to cause harm, to draw attention to um, what a, to whatever their causes in a really negative way and cause harm to writers. It's something that they could do and it'd be really horrific. So I'm glad that hasn't happened. I, there, there wasn't a lot of coverage of this, but this is actually the second uh, protest action that's been disruptive during this tour. The first, I'm trying to find the details of it, but during the actual transfer, I know that there, which was a very long transfer out of Denmark, there were a lot of problems with people going overland uh, because there were road closures due to protests that were happening as well. So this is, you know, there's a very long history of this, particularly in France, of disrupting the Tour de France to draw attention to political causes. Uh, in the past, a lot of stages have been disrupted for things related to 
farming and agriculture. It's It's been common for there to be tractors blocking the roads at a certain point. Um, I wish I could have seen, I understand why they cut away yesterday. France TV seems to cut away at times that I, I don't understand generally, but I wish I could have seen a little more of like what was actually happening during that stoppage yesterday. And then also I did, but if they show that they're just encouraging future protesters to disrupt the race. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I'm interested in it. Yeah. But you're right. Like you, the less you give them, the the less they're incentivized to do it. That's that's true. Um, but yeah, just having to stop in the middle of that level of effort and then continue again had to be horrible. Like, and it was really strange to watch them stop and then they were released at the same time or time intervals that they had before the stoppage. And it's like so. This does like. It's a little unusual for a protest to happen, but sometimes the like trains will just come by and do the same thing. There's a crazy rule in the UCI rule book that says if you can slip by the train, they you get the gap. So like if you have a 10 second gap on the Peloton and you slip through before the train, before the TGV just absolute turns you into a bug, you the Peloton has to wait. And you get the gap. Like, that's a legitimate gap. That's an insane <laughs> rule that I'm surprised exists, but is like, just shows you, like, sometimes you do have to stop. Like, you see it in the classics more often where, like, a train will come along and they all just have to stop and then they restart the race again. Can't be pleasant. I'm like, I guess it's just part of being out on the open road. Same thing with the protesters. I'm certainly not a world tour level talent and I'm a very mediocre amateur bike racer. But I did have this experience at uh, one of my efforts at the Unbound Gravel 100. I had a a mile-long freight train stoppage um, one of the years that I finished second. And I can't help but wonder what might have happened had I not had to wait for that mile-long freight train. But hats off to the rider who got there first and didn't have to stop. It's funny. I swear I've been in races where I've made it through. There's been a stoppage. And then they've like stopped all of us and then let the peloton get the original gap they had which is like crazy i i I'd unbound i guess it makes sense right that's just like that's just the spirit of the, gravel it's, it's you and the yeah it's you in the road and and anything goes i'm surprised there's not more like cheating like people just getting in cars and being like well there was no rule about getting in a car and driving to the finish so i win but a la triplets of bell bells or the kind of the opposite of that where he was getting kidnapped but yeah, it's weird. It's like that world tour level that it's just like, yeah, oh, that that happens. Trains come along. Just sneak under. Don't get hit. Where I mean, we we had a few years ago where a couple of riders almost got taken out by like, you know, those trains are like going like 270 kilometers an hour. You would not want to get hit by one. So it's odd they're incentivizing that. I was going to ask you a question about Alexi Lusenko, your favorite rider. Were you surprised he was so good today? I was confused at times how he was there, why he was there. Did he come from the breakaway? Where did this man come from? Like, were you surprised by how good he is at this tour? On the hardest stage, he finished, I mean, really just 30 seconds behind Pogacar. It's a pretty wild result. I have to say that, I, <laughs> that uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite surprised by it. And like a lot of things in the race today and generally, it is kind of hard to follow at certain moments if it's not either 
part of the major action with the major writers or a French writer, it's really hard to understand how certain writers are showing up at certain moments in the race. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're not French, you're not getting on TV. I mean, there was a point where Yumbo did their initial attack. I have it in my notes. It was like, I don't even have it in my notes because I couldn't tell what was going on. But Yumbo attacks and they just start showing the front of the peloton or the front of the breakaway that just happened to have French riders in it. Like it really seems at points like they're trolling us. Like we want you to not understand what is going on in this race. Let us show you. Pierre Latour getting dropped from for for like a long time. I thought Pierre Latour was at the front of the race. I didn't realize Wout Van Art was leading the race because they kept showing him so much, but he was just getting dropped by the front of the race. There's definitely a very heavy French bias. If Alexi Lucinko was French, we would have seen every moment of his ride back to that front. The same group. thing with Ken, with Quintana. Just suddenly, it's like, oh, he's he's there. He's actually not that far behind Jonas, right? They're <laughs> just. Yeah. Right? he just kind of like popped up and then it's the finish it's like oh he's there he's actually not that far behind that was a little bit surprising but um i know we haven't gotten to talk about this yet and this information came out a couple of weeks ago but another thing that was surprising was discovering that primos roglic goes running every morning yeah this is a good now that i'm just looking at it he finished 11 and a half minutes down on the stage must not have gotten a jog in this morning <laughs> yeah has a habit of I, I would push back on this a little bit because he did win a Grand Tour by riding well in the third week at the Vuelta last year. It was actually maybe the strongest I've ever seen him in that third week. He does have a habit, though, of oftentimes just having a slight decline in performance in the third week of a Grand Tour. Yeah, and we find out that he runs every morning. This cannot be... I, I'm speechless. I, this cannot be like helping him conserve energy and be the best cyclist he can be. I mean, have you ever run on the day that you've done a bike race? Certainly not. And not that, not that Primoz Roglic should do anything that I do uh, to inform his training. I mean, maybe there's something to it. Maybe it opens up his legs in a certain way. Maybe he likes the sensations. The sensations, yeah. The sensations are so important. I have like friends who like have been tricked by this. They're like, you know, I just had bad sensations. I'm like, the sensations do not exist. Do not ever cite the sensations. Um, you know, one theory I had is that, and George Hincapi was like hip to this, this was like 12 months ago, that a lot of pro cyclists, I don't think many do it in the race, but just on their own time, they ride, they run really early, like six in the morning before they eat anything, because it helps them stay as skinny as possible. As I mentioned with Jonas, the guy is unbelievably thin. Same thing with Garrett Thomas. I mean, Roman Bardet too, like really scary thin. Um, there's a couple ways to do that. One of the ways is, you know, remember the Sky uh, asthma medication, like that's fantastic at just stripping you of all fat and leaving you very strong still. Say more about that. How does gonna, that work? So I forget the name of the drug. I should know it because it was like the talk of the town for a long time. But is it clenbuterol? Um, that's what it is. Clenbuterol, but it's like something in the clenbuterol that does this. And this is like what was rumored to be in the. This is probably what was in the Jiffy bag for those who remember that mess. Um, but they were found to be using it, and you can only use it if you're like deathly asthmatic. Um, like if you're going to die at the tour because of allergies and magically all the sky riders were, were just happened to be super allergic to pollen in France. 
And this drug, it's fantastic. You take it, Robert Miller's, not Robert Miller? Yeah. No, there's Robert Miller, David Miller said it's like the, it's the strongest drug you can take because it just strips all the fat off your body. Um, and you basically are emaciated, but you're really, really, really strong. So imagine if we were 30 pounds lighter and just as strong as we are now, we'd be amazing cyclists. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it, I guess, is just like starve yourself and run before breakfast and try to like activate the metabolism. I'm not a big, I don't follow this that well. I know a few people who are big into like fasting in the mornings and you know they look pretty fit so maybe it works but that that's probably what's going on here that he wants to like activate his metabolism before he eats breakfast because he thinks it's helping him keep the weight off yeah i'm more from the early chris horner in and out burger school of thought uh one of the things i miss most about being here in Maine and not being in California i also wanted to correct the record here i made a false statement clenbuterol was the steroid that Contador got popped for, I think he cited he cited oh, the steroid. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, salbutamol is the steroid so. that's in asthma inhalers, and this is the one that Froome had a positive for at the 2017 Vuelta, the, and it his levels I believe were a, it was like a lethal. Yeah, it was amount. like a thousand times. Uh, you know, again, yeah. I, I want to make sure I'm not exaggerating too much. Yeah. Yeah. He had a, a so very the, high level. So the steroid that uh, Sky was taking and David Miller took is called Kenacort. If, if you're listening to this and you want to take steroids to be like really fast on the bike. And this is a little bit different. You know, we don't want to get like too inside baseball with doping, but like there's, there's like oxygen vector doping, which would be EPO or taking blood out in the off season at Christmas because there's no, no one's going to test you at Christmas. And then you put it back in right before your race that like raises the amount of like oxygen you can push throughout your body is very helpful. Um, it's seen as like bad cheating. And then there's like another level of cheating, which is what we're talking about where, you know, it's drugs that will basically like give you more testosterone, but you don't have to do the pesky eating part to have the testosterone or like be at a healthy weight. You can just starve yourself and still make muscles because you're taking these drugs. And those are kind of gray area methods where people are just pushing the limits of getting therapeutic use exemptions in order to take medications you might legitimately take for something else. And yeah, this has also happened with thyroid medications. There were a lot of problems with that for a while. Same thing. People were taking thyroid medications, getting TUEs in order to get as lean as possible and having levels of body fat that it would be impossible to sustain in the absence of taking those drugs. And then, of course, there is the Tyler Hamilton method, which he disclosed in his memoir, which Daniel Coyle co-wrote with him. And he would take Ambien after six hour rides, not eat, and then drink a, like a liter of fizzy water and go to bed. So <laughs> yeah. don't do any of yeah, these things. You, yeah, we shouldn't do any of these things. And even the running before breakfast, I mean, like if you're me and you're a working man and kind of busy and maybe you don't ride as much as you want to and you want to lose a little bit of weight, you know, that could be an interesting thing I would explore. If you're like, a cyclist who's training really, really hard, I would not recommend it. I mean, I think you could, A, you could probably develop a pretty, pretty gnarly eating disorder that way. And then 
be. It just doesn't seem, it seems like you're going to like run your body down at a certain point. I, I don't, I couldn't recommend it. Here's one over the counter legal method that I'll share. And this, this is something that I heard a U.S. primarily crit writer was doing in the early 2000s. But I heard from a reliable source that this writer started wearing slings, like the kind you would put a broken arm in on both arms in order to atrophy the muscles in their arms to have like the absolute minimal amount of uh, upper body musculature. It's a pretty extreme method. I don't recommend this one either, but apparently it was effective for that writer. Yeah. And it's going to eat your bone mass or your bone density away. And then so when you crash, you're like guaranteed to break both collarbones. My rule of thumb is if you can't win U.S. criteriums without destroying your body via drugs or atrophying your muscles, it's just okay. It's fine. You don't need to be. It. it wasn't meant to be. Do not go through extreme lengths to win U.S. criteriums. There's not enough on the line. Um, and did you want to ask me a question about the outer line? Yeah, I did. So there, yeah, there was something in the outer line and Spencer, do you want to say something about the outer line for any listeners that might not be subscribers currently? Yeah. It's kind of like an inside baseball free newsletter. I send out with a few other kind of like cycling business thought leaders. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can poke around and check it out there. We have a few, it's, I always find it helpful. Like a few interesting topics. I write a few paragraphs and then my partners on that throw in a few of theirs as well. Yeah, I really enjoy the newsletter. I read it every week. I'm always looking forward to uh, getting the new drop. But there was something in there yesterday that I thought was a really interesting idea. I know we haven't explored on here. But, you know, a lot has happened with this evolution of stage racing, uh, with Grand Tour racing in particular, and kind of the new cycling, as we might call it. And there's been experimentation with stage formats. We've seen cobbles in the tour before, for example, but the manner in which they were deployed in this year's tour made the race really interesting, really visually compelling, uh, particularly after the fact when you could tell what happened during the race. We've also seen more compressed formats where you're seeing shorter stages. And you just proposed some ideas for further experimentation and adjustments of the different categories of leaders within the race. So you threw out the idea, or you and your partners threw out the idea of, hey, let's lower the age of the best young rider in the race. That was one of them. And then you had another idea I thought was really interesting, which is what if we had a master's category for the Valverde's, the Garrett Thomas's, other riders out there that might be, you know, over 35. So can you just say more about that and what you think that might bring to the race for spectators? I did not rubber stamp this idea. I just want to say that. But definitely the yellow, the sorry, the white jersey needs to be lower. It's crazy that it's 25 years old. Tadej Pogacar, let's just say he wins this tour. He would have won the tour three times in a row and won the white jersey three times in a row. It's become completely pointless because someone that's 21, 22, 23 can win the tour. And the classification shows us nothing. They should absolutely lower that probably to around like I'd be curious, like, who's the best 21-year-old at this race? Is it Quinn Simmons? I don't know. Um, tell me. Via the jersey. That'd be cool. Um, the old jersey's kind of fun. It's a fun idea. At the end of the day, though, I mean, this is like professional sports. Like, you would never have, like, the best scorer over the age of 35 in the NBA. I guess that's just called LeBron James. Um, and he does kind of have, like, a master's category where it's always like, he's yeah, he, he's missing the playoffs every year, but he's so old that this is impressive. Um, I mean, it would be kind of fun, right? Yeah, who's who is the best rider over thirty-five? It's probably Garrett Thomas. Um, 
I don't know. Yeah, that'd be kind of interesting. It's I, I hesitate to really lean into it because it is like at the end of the day, this is like cutthroat professional sports. I don't think we need a consolation prize for guys that are like, if you're 35 and you're in the tour, like that's impressive in itself. That's the jersey, in my opinion, the fact that you even made it there. Um, one idea we did have that I was kind of backtracking on today is this was like a year ago. We wrote a piece about the KOM jersey is stupid the way it is. It's just always like some guy who gets away. Like, would anyone say Simon Geshka or Pierre Latour, the one twos in the KOM categories are the best climbers of this race? I don't think so. So we were proposing that instead of doing the points, you just time the riders on the climbs and like the guy who goes the fastest up every major climb wins the jersey. I thought it was kind of interesting, but the Giro spooked me. Um, like if you don't have these, if you don't incentivize guys to get out in front of the race, would there be any breakaway? You know, because primarily the reason Geshka and Latour and even Warren Bargill to an extent were out there killing themselves today and then made the race behind them faster is for those points. You know, we saw it this Euro. I thought it was almost like a breaking of modern racing in a way where there was days where there was just no one out front and the the race would be so slow and like unbelievably boring. There was no silly breakaways to pull it along um, that today I was wondering like, well, if these guys aren't out front chasing KOM points, is this, are they just like slow riding basically to the climbs and then jabbing on the climb and then you lose that. I, what I thought was a pretty thrilling chase to the base of the final climb where, you know, if they don't pull back that time in Barguil, you know, he has a chance to win. If he goes into that climb with six minutes, he could win. If he doesn't have the incentive of getting KOM points, he probably doesn't even go out there and go for that victory. So, you know, some of these are like good ideas and some of them over time, I'm like, I don't know if that actually would be fantastic i mean what do you think do you want to see an old rider old riders yeah i think your point about at the highest level of sport do we really need what's effectively a participation medal for someone probably not but i do like the idea of anything that is going to make it more visually compelling to your point with the giro yeah like it's just not that interesting when you have the field riding along all day chatting it up while you have drone hopper out front on their chipolini bikes uh, as much as I love them, yeah, right. But and lowering and lowering the age for the youth, yeah, and adding an old old man's jersey and lowering the age for the youth jersey would just give more. If all of those jerseys combine, there's there's no motor, as you're saying. It just globs. Yeah, along. so I think anything that that animates the race. Another thought that I had today, and we can probably do a future episode about this. And. Of course, there's the whole Rafa Walton report about the future of pro cycling. I know you and your partners have thought about this a lot. But as we think about the tour in particular, periodically it does try new and different things to reanimate the race and to break it out of this predictable mold. And particularly with the mountains, you have to be geographically proximate to the mountains. But one of the things that I wondered is a lot of where the predictability comes from is from uh, it's from the rhythm of the race. It's from the riders' bodies. You know, they're used to the flats, they're used to the rolling terrain, or like they start to get accustomed to the mountains. And when you have a jarring shift of gears, that's when sometimes you see a much more animated race happen. So where they are physically in France right now, it's I my I don't think that it's possible. But what if tomorrow, for example, in a future edition of the race, if today's stage had just happened, 
they're doing something more like Strata Bianchi, where they have they're going to have twenty different gravel sectors in between two really hard mountain stages with HC climbs. I'm just I think the idea of throwing things in that are unexpected, out of the norm, make they reinvigorate the race and make it really interesting, and it's an area for further exploration. But you know that's the Vuelta does kind of do what you're talking about, where they like. For the tour, it's very geography based. Yeah, they're in the they're in the Alps right now, so they're probably going to bang out as many alpine stages as they can. The Vuelta will go like there's no rhyme or reason to any of that situation. Like they'll be on one side of the country, they'll fly to Galicia to do a 45 percent climb, and then they'll do a transition day in between. But yeah, I mean, it would be kind of interesting, especially since guys are so like Quintana's going to Quintana's basically warming up his engine and gets another shot tomorrow. Pogacar's in trouble. He's probably going to lose more time tomorrow. But yeah, what if there was a completely different type of stage where Pogacar could try to take time back because it's not a mountain stage? Yeah, it would be kind of interesting. Well, when we when we run the tour, that's maybe what we'll do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what we think. And then we'll come <laughs> in and be like, actually, there's these five financial reasons why we have to start and finish in these towns. And yeah. then <laughs> our idea is dead in the water. Yeah, completely. That's like all good ideas you have are like eventually killed by spreadsheets. It happens sometimes. But the one thing that's never going to be killed by a spreadsheet, Garrett Thomas's glasses, it'll never happen. It's probably driving more value for Oakley than any new glass you would ride. One thing I wanted to ask you before we go is, I was a little surprised. So it's stage 11 today. First real alpine stage we've had. First real mountain stage we've had. Did you like that, that they, you know, we've seen in recent years, like, you know, the Vuelta and Giro particularly will do like summit finishes or, or mountain stages in the first week. Did you like that they pulled this along? Have you liked how this has opened up and kind of, kind of slowly bloomed like a flower? Or, or do you want to see just mountain stages everywhere? I, I really like where this is positioned in the race right now. And I'm... You know, I want to wait and see because we've seen this happen before where you have uh, you have a stage like today, everything just explodes. You get some unexpected outcomes. You have a favorite washout. And, you know, if Jonas just comfortably moves into the lead and defense, this actually becomes a pretty boring race for the next two weeks. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a likely scenario because I think we're going to see a lot of things impacting what otherwise would be the status quo. But I think anything that mixes it up and, you know, to your point, gives someone who might have lost a big chunk of time chance to gain that time back without waiting until like the final two days of the race is great. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I've I've had really liked the rhythm of it. I used to be just like, why are the mountains later? And like Jean-Marie LeBlanc, the former director of the tour, oh man, it would just be like five sprint stages in a row and two two time trials that are 150 kilometers each. And it was just like a, a snooze fest of an opening week. I think they've done a really good job um, with kind of these like mixed terrain, mixed, you know, kind of stages that are hard to... We, hard to classify what exactly they are. They've kind of allowed Pogacar to burn himself out a little bit. Yeah, if Jonas holds this and they're just on the front for the second half of the race, that is disappointing. But tomorrow is not going to be an easy day for Yumbo. I mean, that's going to be a really hard stage to control. I, I don't know. I have to take my hat off. I think they've done a great job with the course design. Um, 
it's almost like they've let the, the hip young kids burn themselves out of and the tour runs the Vuelta. So that they're just doing their spaghetti throwing over at the Vuelta. It's not like that's a completely different thing, but it's like they, yeah, they use the Vuelta as a testing ground. And then I think, I think they've refined it into a very, very nice rhythm of the race here. Yeah. We didn't get to this, but maybe we'll talk about it on Friday. If you're in Naos, where are you going to take, where are you potentially going to make a move to try to take this race? It's not on these big mountains. I mean, because Thomas is not as good of a climber as Jonas, Nairo, or Bardet. So you need him to be as close as possible going into that. Final time trial is like your life jacket. Like you're just trying to get there. You know, honestly, they could probably ride a little conservatively. And with the strategy of like, maybe Jonas has a, maybe Jonas has a problem. It's kind of is boring for us. Um, it's very low risk for them though. And you know, you maybe have a 10% chance of success because if Jonas has a problem, even a flat, even a crash at a bad time, Garrett Thomas could find himself in pole position to win this race. Like if he goes into this time trial within 30 seconds of a minute behind Bardet and Pogacar is the wild card here. It just really depends. What is, what happens to Pogacar tomorrow? You know, does he lose more time? If so, then like we're having a serious conversation about Thomas sitting back and just waiting for it to come to him. You know, you could try to, there's like the stage in the San Etienne on Friday that they could try something. They could try something in the Pyrenees. I, I just a little risky because Thomas is not quite as robust as some of these other guys on the, in the really hard mountain stages. So you really just want to make life as easy as possible for him. Like today, you know, he's just sitting in the wheels. So it's kind of boring, but I think he has to continue just to sit tight and hope the others have problems from this point forward. Spencer, looking ahead, I have to say, without knowing what's going to happen in the race, I'm just really disappointed that on stage 20, we're going to have an individual time trial. I just find this to be one of the most boring ways to end a race from a, a viewing uh, point of view. That's not what I... So 2020 was boring to you on stage 20? Yeah, honestly, like I, it just it delivered to me about, you know, 30 minutes of drama. And yeah, it was a very dramatic way for the race lead to change hands and for victory to be decided. But I just don't find it to be that interesting to watch. I've, this is a very controversial take. I don't really enjoy watching individual time trials. It's well, I don't think that's that controversial. I think a lot of people would agree with you. Yeah. They're not the most compelling visually. The thing that I like about them is it's this looming thing. So it's like Garrett Thomas is fourth and two and a half minutes back. He's really only 10 seconds out of second place, though. It like makes him second place in the clubhouse. So then everyone else has to race accordingly. It's like a ghost is behind you and you have to outrun it. That's kind of what I like about that stage 20 time trial. Fair enough. I'll let you like it, but I'll respectfully disagree with you. I will say the, the final stage of the zero has been a time trial quite often the last 10 years. And you would think that that would be exciting. It is anything but exciting. I mean, we even had what Teo Gagenhart took pink from Jai Henley in 2020. And I, I thought that was kind of a snoozer of a stage. So you could be onto something there. I mean, if it was a mountain stage instead and you had a time trial on stage, I don't know, 17, you know, that would probably be maybe, maybe a better situation. One day we may.
All right, we will get it. Well, I got to run and write the newsletter and get it out to people and then record my other podcast. So I'll let you go. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you Friday after our transition. Yeah, great to be here, Spencer. And if anyone wants to hit us up, we'd love to hear from you. Spencer is at BTP Cycling on Twitter. I'm at Vance and at Hardway Pod. If you have questions, comments, want to be in touch, reach out. All right, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye.